Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our eighth episode of 2023. And I got the year right this time. So um, what we thought we would do uh, is very much in the tune with the times we're in. And that is to think about how do you respond from a public policy perspective when you're attacked? Uh, we've seen many different strategies and tactics when it comes to response to attack. Uh, <clears throat> but you can also note that they've changed quite materially over the last five years, I want to say. Uh, if you're uh, found out to be lying, it used to be that you apologized, that you retracted your lies, that you went through all the things that unhappily led you to, to take this really bad decision to tell an untruth in some way. And then slowly over time that shifted to a point where you would simply repeat the lie and say it's actually the truth. And you would double down on your lies and you would say, look, this is how it actually really is. And, and, that, and that turned out to be a very different kind of politics. And it, it, it presents you with a series of interesting questions as a public policy professional. What, what is the best response to attack? If you're attacked by an NGO that says that you're not living up to your practice, if you're attacked by a politician who says that you're, you're profiting from the wrong things, if you're attacked by, by another company who says that you're not necessarily uh, doing what is in the interest of the public good, what, what are your options and how should you think about that? Especially in <clears throat> what has sometimes been called the post-truth world. And so yeah. what we're going to discuss today is exactly that with me, Nicholas Baird Lumblad, and with me, Richard Allen. Excellent. So, Richard, um, what do you think? What I mean, typically your first instinct when you're attacked, what what would it be? Yeah, I'm, I'm just, just to say, I think your framing is really interesting because there there are these sort of rules of the game, and then and then the, we're in a phase where people are sort of breaking the rules of the game or change the rules of the game. But my my first instinct would be to be really irritated <laughs> uh, and to have lots of sort of internal like defensive chuntering about the thing that I've been attacked on, but then just immediately instinctively to say, look, in public, you know, we'll, we'll work through the idea that we'd have some kind of aggressive response, but then recognize that what we need to do is go and calm things down and say, we'll deal with whatever the attack is and not, not question too hard the validity of the attack, just, well, you know, they've raised something now we need to respond to it. So it's quite a passive response. Um, a colleague of mine, this is, I know this conversation is partly prompt by, prompted by our, our friend uh, over at Twitter, uh, Elon mm. Musk, saying that he was going to launch thermonuclear lawsuits against uh, NGOs who had attacked, attacked that company. And uh, one of my colleagues I, I saw responded to one of his previous outbursts on this to say, look, you get really, really irritated. You have this sort of internal conversation where you're going, ah, about the NGO. And he said, and then you put your big boy trousers on and go back to work <laughs> and yeah. recognize that that's just how things are, that, you know, if you're a big, powerful corporation, people come after you and uh, you have to sort of suck it up and, and yeah. try and respond to them. You don't launch thermonuclear lawsuits. Like that's, that's quite I don't new. even know what that is, a thermonuclear. It sounds very scary, though. I, I expect no, it's yeah. the kind of lawsuit that puts somebody out of business. But so <clears throat> there is an interesting point in what you're saying, and that's typically the reaction, right? You grumble, 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 and then yeah. you say, okay, we have to absorb this. Let's get through it. Uh, but, but shouldn't we make a distinction between two cases? One case in which you're being criticized on a point where 
there's actually some criticism to be had. There is there are things you're doing that could be improved. There is, you know, you're far from a perfect state, which is often the case, right? You're often far from a perfect state. And then the other case is one in which you're being attacked in a way. It's just inane. People you sort of do it from from ignorance or from malice or just because it fits their uh, rhetoric in different ways. Yeah. They seem to be very different to me. I mean, the, substanti- the substantial criticism and the almost like accidental criticism that's just levied at you because you are, as you said, a big company. But is there really a distinction there? I I think that I mean I think it's very rare that you're criticised when there when there isn't something problematic there. Sometimes the problem is misidentified. So if we look at the example of actually what's going on at the moment with the criticism, it is uh, that the you know the thermonuclear lawsuit is is threatened to be launched against this organisation Media Matters USA, and so because they've published a set of screenshots of corporate advertising alongside offensive anti-Semitic or racist content. And the defense, and I remember Facebook, we had exactly the same thing. So this is a kind of common tactic. And the defense is, look, you don't understand how the advertising system works, that, that you're not, you know, the advertising is to an individual user. The reason it's in that um, news feed is because that user, that person is being targeted because they're in the right demographic. And if that person also looks at anti-Semitic or racist content, then of course the ad is going to be juxtaposed with the anti-Semitic and racist content. It does not mean you're advertising against the anti-Semitic content. That, and yeah, as a sort of substantive matter of fact, I think there's something to that. Uh, and that's only what we would argue at Facebook. But, and it's a really big <laughs> but, the real problem that the person has identified is that there is anti-Semitic and racist content on the platform. And that's real. (laughs) And so what they're actually saying is we don't like the fact that your content standards permit that. And in this case, that the leader of the company seems to be quite um, uh, explicitly saying he thinks it's okay for a certain amount of that content to be on his platform in the name of free speech. And they're saying, and look, advertisers, do you really want to be part of that? So... I think in terms of the real substance, there is an issue. The very specific thing of, you know, I mean, here's where the frustration is. There is no way to change the advertising system to not juxtapose the content if the ads are appearing in the feed of a user whose own own consumption of content you can't control, if that makes sense. So, mm. so yeah, but they have still have identified something. I'll give you another sort of very concrete example as well is, um, Facebook used to get accused of taking down pictures of topless women. Uh, and it got accused of taking down pictures of women breastfeeding. Again, I, I live this as a, like a perennial <laughs> thing where, um, you know, in the early days of Facebook, they did, they have always had a policy against what they regard as sexualized nudity. And this is the rub. A lot of people would say, look, topless photos of men and women should be treated equally and you shouldn't take down the topless photos of the women. I'm sure, I'm sure this would be the prevailing view in most of Scandinavia and Northern Europe. Um, well, we don't even understand the discussion. Yes, it's very So again, there was something there, uh, but the accusation would be you're taking down photos of, to- of breastfeeding women. And we go, no, no, no. If we, if we do, it's an accident because our policy is very clear. You should not take down photos of breastfeeding women but you should take down photos of topless women who are not breastfeeding. 
and so again, you can you can like scream yourself hoarse saying, look, your attack is wrong. We don't take down photos of breastfeeding women. And if we do, it was an accident. But that doesn't resolve this substantive issue that actually people are really concerned about content standards and whether they're discriminatory. Yeah. And so there's usually layers of issues under each and every yeah. issue that you're being faced with. But there's also another aspect of this that's kind of fascinating. And as somebody once told me, an old mentor of mine, that if you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah. And so, so to some extent, what you're doing is you're explaining this advertising system. You're saying, look, if you're an organization on the prowl for, um, for example, a, spe- a specific kind of content, say anti-Semitic content, then you're going to find a lot of that content because you're actively searching for it. And then there will be ads that appear next to that content. That doesn't mean that the content in some way is clued to the, to the, exactly. to the uh, advertising. But <clears throat> that, at, even at that point, you've you're sort of lost because you're explaining the advertising system and people simply don't care. So explanation seems to be one of those strategies that that is so tempting because you believe you have a really good explanation for what's happening, but also so ultimately ineffectual. So how do you, there are two problems here, I think. One is how do you dissuade your own organization from going into explaining mode? Because everyone is going to be like, no, 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 we have an explanation for that. And, And at some point you have to be the bad guy who stands up and says, well, I like your explanation. It is very rational, and I think you have a lot going for you in that particular explanation. Your argument is sound, even. Yeah. But that does <laughs> <I'm>, not matter. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to use it. Um, so, so, yeah, a couple of other maxims that go with that. If uh, you're right, because you know, if you're explaining, you're losing because now you're talking about the fact you've got anti-Semitic content. You're you're saying, well, the advertising isn't specifically tied to the anti-Semitic content, but now we're focused on the fact you have the anti-Semitic content, and that's you've lost. And and so I think a couple of other maxims. One is you know, simple beats complex. And actually, again, in the broader political context, this is what we see again and again, that politicians with a really simple message win. You know, um, Brexit, you know, uh, take back control, simple. Uh, The anti-Brexit argument, well, we get these benefits from the European Union and if we pool our sovereign, blah, 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 and you've lost them. And so simple in political communication beats complex. And in this case, we're talking about political, so that's part of a problem. So if you can't simplify your defense or your explanation to be as simple as the challenge you're getting, you've got a problem. And Uh, on that, I just want to say, I think you're spot on because that's such a good point. And I think that's actually something that goes into the wider political discourse and the climate that we're in when we're thinking about it, because a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with the level of complexity that our societies have arrived at. And in some extent, what you want is this simplicity, simplicity of living, simplicity of explanation, simplicity of context. And actually, one of my sort of pet theories is that this is why zombie movies are so incredibly popular or zombie series are so incredibly popular. Because if you were in the sort of zombie apocalypse, you need to only remember three things. One, don't get bit. Two, find fuel and food. Three, don't trust other people. And if you have those three things down pat, you're going to survive your zombie apocalypse. You don't have to think about your retirement policy. You don't have to yeah. think about the complexities of funding, and, or, you know, publicly funded national health system. You don't have to think about whether or not you should have private funding of school. All of those things just go away. There are three things. Don't get bit, get fuel food, don't trust people. And the simplicity of that is, I think, what is the ultimate underlying attraction of the zombie apocalypse. And so I think that is actually such a, it's a foundational point to understand part of the political dynamics that we're currently caught up in. Yeah. And maybe, and again, a diversion that in our world, 
of the policy people, and this is for our community to think about, we inha- we sort of natively attract people who love complexity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I hate simple problems. I want a really difficult, complex problem. Mm-hmm. And actually, if I think now to some of our content policies, you know, they reflected that. We we had that episode that not a lot of people listen to, but if they want to go back in the podcast, listen to our <laughs> yes. nudity, nudity episode. But I remember the nudity policy, which is, I've just described, you have this policy of saying, you know, you can't be a topless woman unless you're breastfeeding. But then, then the complexity was... And if you're wearing a string vest or some kind of sheer top, how much of the top had to cover which bits of the breast? In or in, and our world, we attract you know, to other people out there. It's like, can you show breasts or not? Yes yep. or no? And we're like, yes. oh, no. We're, so we're in this And even world simpler, where, are you profiting off of porn? Is, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Are you, that sort of, exactly. even simpler, right? And so it goes back to, are you good or are you bad? Or corrupting kids or whatever it is. And we, and yeah. we, and we like the complaint. It's not just that we communicate the complexity, we actively like it. And we're like, no, no, we're not so, so stupid as just to have a policy on, on breasts. No, we've thought of this really, really clever, cunning way to square the circle, blah, blah, blah. And we do that again and again and again. I, I remember. Yeah. Again, having to argue to somebody who knew that I didn't believe, well, I, I, I was doing a job to explain a policy that the company had arrived at that I didn't agree with. This was about um, Holocaust denial, try, trying to explain how there were, in some very narrow circumstances, some forms of Holocaust denial that might just arguably not be anti-Semitic, while at the same time, like nearly every instance of Holocaust denial I've ever seen, I understood was anti-Semitic, and that was the intent and yeah. purpose, you know. But you sort of, again, you construct these very complex arguments where people are just like, you allow Holocaust denial, you hate Jews. Yes, you're being <laughs> asked about the rule and you're arguing the exception. And I think yeah, that's yeah, exactly. so often true. I think it's so often true. And and because, as you say, it, our profession attracts people who revel in complexity and, and also pride themselves on nuance. And yes. those are qualities that are really hard to communicate. And I think there are yeah. contexts in which this is right. And I actually think that having that mindset is not a bad thing because it allows you to think through questions. But what you then have to do is to reduce that nuance and that complexity into a message that is, and this is the point that you made that I also thought was really interesting, as simple as the attack you're facing. Yes. And possibly simpler. And yeah. I think that there is something about that that, that is really hard, but also extremely powerful. Yeah, and I think I, I think politicians, when they do it right, can do this. I'm just I, you know, I work in politics all the time, and we're looking at things you might pledge to the electorate at election time, and and what I'm, I think we'll end up with is a very small number of very simple things that you pledge to the electorate, and then underneath that you have a whole load of complexity, but you don't imagine that everyone wants to hear all of the complexity, and some people will you know, uh, so push back against that and go, no, 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 we must tell everybody everything, you know, uh, but you ha- you've got this, or, or if we just give them the simple version, we're somehow lying and cheating. It's actually not the case. You can both be complex and simple, but and kind honest of your audience. At the same and time. honest. Yeah, the two can be honest, as long as you take great care to make sure that, that there is a thread. And, and they have this phrase of sort of double clicking on things. You know, yeah. your top line pledges you can give and then if people want to double click and see what's underlying that's fine so you can say you know we ban nudity or we don't ban nudity you can just keep that message going uh, and then if people want to double click they can double click and understand 
uh, what's happening behind that nudity policy. Yes. And so, yes. And I think that notion of double clicking is interesting because it also identifies the populists uh, who can't double click. Yeah. Where there is no link, <laughs> there is like no opportunity to get to that next layer, to get to that next complexity, because you know it stops and ends with the simplicity. So it's it's simplicity within with sort of with accessible depth, if you want it. That that is yeah. sort of that's that's your communication strategy. It has to be your communication strategy in some sense. Yeah. So but you don't back, need to lead with the depth. No, the no, and and, and this this goes back to another thing. You don't have to make the other person believe what you believe to convince them of doing what you think they should do. This yeah. is because if you are indeed trying to make them believe what you believe, you are exacting too much of a cognitive cost, and it's something that will make people just turn away from whatever argument you're trying to make. If you can find a way to make people believe an argument that is easy for them to believe, if you can reduce their cognitive cost, stay within the parameters of honesty, and provide them with an argument they understand and sympathize with. And that's your win. Your win is not to have them believe the exact same thing you believe. Yes. And yeah. so let's go back to attacks. So we're in this place where we've sort of, we've grumble, grumble, you know, they don't understand. We've tried to explain because we like complexity and we want to nuance this, this unfair criticism. I want to step, I want to sort of, sort of just pause there a bit on the unfairness because I remember this being a, a visceral feeling that many people had when mm. we were being attacked. That was unfair criticism. And this notion of unfairness is interesting to me because I think it, it, it triggers all of the wrong emotions, the emotions of defensiveness that you mentioned, but also of vengeance in some sense. Thermonuclear yes. lawsuit seems to imply some kind of vengeance, I suppose. And, but, but the unfairness of the thing is something that you have to be really careful not to react to because perceived unfairness is, if you design an attack well, actually a really important part of the attack, right? Yes. Uh, I, and I, I think, again, this question of like how this applies in the broader context that there is a there's a form of political jousting which i think could be replicated here where the two sides respect each other and the other side has a go you know you're actually in the uk the the major uh non-government party is known as uh, his majesty's loyal opposition <laughs> and the idea is that they are performing a loyal function and you should respect them for that function uh, and whoever is in government needs a loyal opposition to keep them honest and they'll swap over at various times that's the sort of old school respectful model where you're you're really respecting the right of that other party as professionals uh working in the same same sphere and you and again you're the underlying assumptions you both have a, a public interest at heart and then now a lot of politics has degenerate into this notion of you know, my side uh, has a monopoly of truth. The other side is I don't respect them. They are evil. Uh, they're problematic. I should destroy them. They have no right to exist. That's a very different uh, uh, mindset. And I think the healthy one, again, in our tech world is I've seen examples of both. I've seen examples of where, you know, you have really good non-governmental organizations with really sound people uh, criticizing companies acting as a loyal opposition, <laughs> I can frame it in those terms, where there's an assumption on both sides that each of them is broadly acting in the public interest, they're reasonable people, even where you disagree over some fundamentals. And I've seen other instances where both sides, where the opposition, the, the non-governmental organization, actually now sees the company as an evil that must be destroyed. And the company in response sees the non-governmental organization as 
an evil organization that must be destroyed. Well, yeah, then, then there's another problem here that I find uh, frustrating, and that is, in many cases, it's not even that they perceive the company to be an evil that me- must be destroyed, because that can be informed by a certain righteous passion, right? Yeah. It's that they know that the way in which they continue to exist and fundraise is by repeating formulaic criticisms that have grown stale and old. But they stick to these formulaic criticisms because that's the way they build their own base. Very often, I think, when we talk about politics and polarization, we seem to think that it's about the two parties that sort of this party hates that party and they attack each other. But to a large extent, it's about the base, how you energize yes. your own base to continue to feel loyalty towards you. And the opposition, if you will, is just a foil for that. And so what you're doing is just you're strengthening your own side by attacking the other. And you don't really care about the other as much as the loyalty and cohesion in your own group. You're building tribal cohesion through what is often formulaic and tired attacks on the opposition. And this is true for politics, for sure, where you say, you know, all of the Democrats, just they're just woke people who don't care about family values, or all the Republicans are evil gun-toting people who all do this or that. And, and, and that's not so much because you want to destroy the Republicans, but you want to create this, this, this sort of feeling of, of belonging in your own group. And that's the core value that you're producing. And, and when... When, when that happens with, between civil society and business, for example, or industry, something fundamental is lost. What's yes. lost is the connection that exists in a real conflict. So paradoxically, what you would want, what you would hope for, is a real, honest, deeply felt conflict between two parties that's not just geared up towards creating the loyalty of the people who belong to your own side. Yes. Now, I think that's right. And again, if I sort of think of the Brexit example, because sometimes the market structure creates an opportunity for somebody to have uh, a business model uh, of of responding to something's happening. So if we think of the Brexit example again in the UK, that the European Union was trundling along for many years. It created a space in the market for critics of the European Union whose sole job was to organize around that criticism and build brand loyalty around that criticism. And and then we got to the point where we had this sort of crunch referendum. And now their business model has gone in a lot of ways because it's done. They got the thing that they wanted mm. and their business model has gone. And now now things are sort of moving on. But, but it was interesting, I think, to your point that uh, would the public interest have been better served by having the critics and the support of the European Union having a more meaningful conversation earlier on. I think absolutely right. Uh, you know, it certainly would have helped the United Kingdom. It might have helped the European Union, actually. Yeah. Uh, had that. But instead, no, their business model was purely based on hostility. And, and the you know, they were sort of, in a sense, pa- parasitically, from a political point of view, able to exist because the main establishment was sitting there defending the European Union and the European Union was doing things that, you know, allowed it to sort of feed off of that. And you can see that in all different directions. You can see that with, you know, it's not, it's a, it's not a left-right thing. You can see left parties that are able to sort of live off the fact that there's a conservative government that they can be outraged at. Mm, totally. No, it's, it's, it's not one side or the other. But, <laughs> but I also think that it, 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 one of the things that was pointed out recently in a book by uh, Alistair Campbell was that this is one of the reasons that when you're in the situation where the conflict is not really deeply felt between two parties, but a way to strengthen your own basis cohesion, a referendum is like a horrible tool. Yeah. 
Because you're not actually discussing the conflict, you're discussing what identity would you like to have. A referendum becomes an expression of your your tribal belonging. And so in that case, the, the group that is biggest and most mobilized, so it's mobilization, will actually win the referendum. And you've simplified it down, not to the complexities of conflict, because the conflict can be really complex and deeply felt, but you've simplified it down to who are you. That's sort yes. of a referendum question if you scratch the surface. It's too late at that point to address anything, <clears throat> and then I think what you know what's really problematic there is, yeah, the the energy is now going into this binary decision that could have gone into a process of addressing the issue. There was an issue, you know, there was an issue of people feeling disempowered and of laws, and I'm sure even even in the most pro-European countries, people recognise this is an issue. Oh, totally. But, but again, the defensive temptation for those who are supporting of the European Union is just to go, no, no, no issue, you know, because you, the enemy, are are sort of um, describing the issue in such apocalyptic terms that I have to pretend it doesn't exist. And maybe that, and that, again, is a huge lesson from some of these political debates that companies can take away, this, this idea that you want to minimise a real issue, a genuine issue, because the person who's attacking you over it is doing it in terms that you find so offensive that you then fail to recognize the issue. And because you fail to recognize it, you fail to do anything about it. And, you know, then we'll come back to bite you later. Mm. And that's that's sort of where you end up when you when you're criticizing an entire industry. Like when you make it about not the actual things, but about the industry itself. So Big Tech is an example of that, right? Where you're, you're sort of painting this entire industry as bad uh, instead of criticizing deeply some of the practices that you think are wrong, which I think some people do, to be fair. But I think a lot of this has, has grown somewhat formulaic. And I think that's, that's a danger. I think it, it mm. would be good if people sought out a more deeply felt conflict. And one of the practices that I think is really interesting and one of the practices that a policy team should regularly think about practicing is, is this notion of steel manning. And it's the opposite of straw manning. So steel manning is taking the opponent's argument and making it as strong as you possibly can make it, stated in such a way, as philosopher DC Dennett used to say, so that your opponent would thank you and say, yes, you put it well. I did not think of a way to put it as well as you did. If you do that with your opponents when you're attacked, you're probably going to learn a lot and you're going to be able to figure out how you can actually respond to the gist of the attack, the sort of core of the attack that you're under. But that requires self-discipline and it requires a, a very clear line of communication with people internally who are not used to being attacked. And I think that's another thing that we should discuss because for the longest time when you and I were active in, in, in technology policy, more sort of mainstream technology policy, the internet was a great thing. Mm. And so this entire industry grew up feeling that they were a part of a great thing. They were changing the world. You know, an open and free internet would bring democracy to all and would route around censorship and treat it as damage. And, and that's why when the attack started coming, there was such a surprise, such a feeling of, of almost betrayal, right? That we, no, 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 we are the good guys. And I think that's another thing that you at some point have to address if you're, a, if you're leading a policy team or if you're in a policy team, you have to just explain that we... we may very well still be the good guys, but sometimes we will not be perceived as the good guys. Yeah, I think <clears throat> being able to ask those questions and giving people in the team permission to ask those questions is critical. And then how you respond, I have to say, again, learning lessons from, from past behaviors. I can certainly remember times where I don't think I was open enough 
uh, and, and people here. use that for us. Yeah, and they would say, uh, we had one instance where um, we were dealing with a lot of issues to do with criticism of refugees in Germany. I remember colleagues in my German team who were very embedded in the culture in Germany, who I should have been listening to, were kind of saying, maybe we are the bad guys, you know, because in Germany, nobody thinks we're okay. Yeah, Everybody thinks we have a problem. And all of our sort of tortuous explanations of why refugee status is not a protected characteristic like ethnicity, you know, again, complex <laughs> arguments. Nuanced arguments, yes. <laughs> Nuanced arguments, and, and and it just didn't wash. It didn't it didn't hold up. And I think I, I remember, again, I, had, I was grateful to have colleagues who had the courage to say, maybe we are the bad guys. Maybe our critics are right. I'm not sure I was sufficiently receptive. So again, that would be a very strong lesson for somebody who's leading a team. How, how do they really genuinely do that? And it's not just, it, it, it can't just be whinging, if I can put it in those terms. It can't just be, oh God, you know, everyone hates us. It's terrible. It isn't that. And we've just got to bend to what everybody wants because everybody hates us. That's Because that's the other side of it, right? Saying, oh, nobody likes us anymore, so we just have to sort of bend with the wind. And that doesn't work either. No, it's not about being liked or not liked. It's not about your job being hard when you have to go out. It's about whether you really think you are right or not. And actually, one of the tests of whether you're really right or not is whether you end up changing. Yes. Uh, and again, one of the maxes we have in the company is, look, if we know we're going to change this in three months' time, having gone through all the pain of arguing why we aren't going to change it, isn't it better to short-circuit that process and make the change now and take a bit less pain? You know, Let's get there quicker if, yeah. if we're wrong. And we're going to change because we, we've accepted we're wrong. Uh, let, then let's try, and to your point about the steel man, if the steel man you know, comes in and makes a really strong case... Let's hear that now, because we're going to hear it in three months' time. And then we're going to change, and the the cost of changing slowly is high, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but again, we're talking about this, and we've been lived it. Uh, but if but we still we've made the mistake. I mean, I'm I'm struggling yeah. now to come up with a case where where we actually did that analysis and properly changed immediately, rather than drag it out. And we, there's there's almost like this self punishing tendency where you go like no yeah. no no we'll argue this and we'll nuance it even further and you end up with arguments that have you know one subclause two subclauses 20 subclauses and you're like well, well well let me explain this to you do you have 32 minutes yeah yeah <laughs> and it's not going to work and the, so i so i think it's really hard but getting to that point is also really important and it's as a, as a sort of intellectual rule, uh, I like one of the things that Tyler Cohen says, where he says that one of the things you have to watch out for with yourself is that whenever you see an argument you don't like, you will have a knee-jerk reaction to devalue and dismiss. Yes. Say, oh, I don't care about that person. I'll dismiss their argument. And that's the thing that we often end up with. So we we tend to look at the sender of the message and we say, oh, they always say this. Or, or, you know, it's in their interest to say this, or they're just harping on about the same old issue, and then we dismiss the argument. And if you have, you know, if you put up a post-it notice on your wall and you have a few good pieces of advice for yourself, one would be do not devalue and dismiss. Mm. Always look at the merits of the argument first. Yeah, and I think it's one, one, lesson, yeah, one lesson on that actually was, uh, where sort of, I think it worked a bit, bit better was where somebody inside the company comes in left field new to something and you can't necessarily devalue and dismiss them because they're a, a colleague perhaps a senior colleague so 
sometimes that I actually thought was extraordinarily helpful. At first, it was irritating as the policy guy. You're like, oh, what's this person, you know, senior engineer got to do with anything? But, <laughs> but if they were outside the company, you would just devalue and dismiss them because they're inside the company and they're very eminent in their field. You have to take it seriously. Some of those conversations, if I think back, were some of the most useful because you've got somebody really smart who's not embedded in your policy team culture, who's challenging you. And if you and and you have a, a bit, let's say, a bit more of this mutual respect because you're in the same team, they don't want to destroy your company. They work for it. They've joined, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they've joined, and that that was actually really helpful. I don't know if that's something again, so institutionally you can cultivate where where you talk to people outside of your team, make yourself talk to people outside of your team to explain what it is you're doing. Uh, you know, often the sales team would be very good at this because they're out there for a policy team. They're out there on the front line and they would come to me and go, my clients think we're terrible on child safety and they don't want to buy ads. You know, I mean, maybe the Twitter folks now, the whoever's trying to sell the ads, uh, talking to them about their experience, actually, and, and seeing if your arguments do stand up. Uh, yeah. That's I love really that. helpful. I mean, institutionalizing that in such a sense that everyone who joins at a certain senior level or you know, anyone really, even at a junior level, should have the right to challenge one thing yeah. that they think you should do differently. And that should be a part of their six-month evaluation. What was your two-pager that you wrote about something we should do differently based on your external experience as you came into the company before you before you started sort of uh, uh, swimming in the Kool-Aid? <laughs> so yeah. so th- that is actually a really good, I think that's really good advice. And it doesn't have, have to, to be do re- that. Yeah, it doesn't have to be reciprocal. They don't need to take my advice on software coding or no, 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 or no. sales tactics. You know, the, but the, I mean, the policy and common stuff actually affects everybody in the company. We used yeah. to we used to do say that. Look, anyone who works for the company, anyone who works for a company today that's on the front page of the newspaper when they have dinner or talk to their families, they're going to be asked about it. So they do all have a stake in defense. They're not going to be asked about how you coded the remote procedure call, but they will be asked how are you treating, you know, at the moment conflict about the uh, content about the conflict in, in the Middle East. Like everyone is going to get asked that if they work for a tech company that carries that kind of content. So they all have a stake in it. And aggregating those signals, I think, I mean, the other thing you said that I think is also horrendously undervalued is the experience of the sales teams, because the sales teams are out there all the time talking to clients and clients will address them not only as clients or customers, but they will address them as, you know, just interrelationally. So here's you know thing I wonder about, why are you doing this? And, and uh, it's one of those things that when we built that team and we built it way back, like a team that, that spoke to our largest customers and asked them what, what were their gripes about the company not just for policy but it could be things like you know why are you having this particular you know sales strategy or why is this contractual provision there when we started doing that the the value and the depth and the richness of the feedback that could be gathered that way it's it's just incredible and so figuring out how you work with your sales team and how you get your sales team to relay back to you what are the top three questions your sales folks are being asked is actually a really powerful way of finding out stuff that other people especially policy people won't tell you so i think yeah. that's actually that's that's a that's a really good point you make there I- that the sales teams are key I'm thinking about the time you spend with them because you can get a sort of two reactions. One is you can just get kind of drawn into the world of sales. That's all, all you do as a policy person. Or you can have the opposite reaction. Oh, I'm policy. I, I have nothing to do with sales. I don't want to dirty oh, my hands. Yeah, like that, the, these are not great places. But having a sort of quota and being very 
intentional about how you engage and making sure that you do go out, engage, go to sales team events, you know, periodically. Uh, I mean, firstly, as most substantively, you'll get really good feedback of what what quite influential people in your world think who are not necessarily political. I found that most of yeah. the the sort of ad buyers and ad sellers, the people working commercially, will, will not be very close to the political world, but they'll have views on all of the issues that matter. There'll be parents yeah. who care about child safety. They'll they'll care about the general economy. You know, they'll have these sort of really interesting takes on what you're doing. So that's the first reason you'll get that substance. Second is they have a lot of fun, don't they? I think I, I still have, <laughs> I have lederhosen in my wardrobe from you know oh, the dear. sales team insisting that I go and join them at the Oktoberfest. And oh, it was terrible having to go and join them at Oktoberfest. But but it they was still have better parties. I think that's they actually do have really been, exactly. Yeah, they parties. have really yeah. good. They go. They have their. These, are the, these are the extroverts, you know. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, but you get a lot out of that. I go to the Oktoberfest. I get lederhosen, but I also get an understanding of uh, what German. Uh, I guess sort of, but yeah, people who are, are business people who are not deeply political, but quite influential think about the platform what's going on on it and yeah that i found extraordinarily valuable good use of a couple of days. do that sort of once a quarter not more often but not not less frequently either maybe once a quarter makes sense and coming back to attacks you can actually source from them the kinds of attacks uh, soft attacks or questions or aggressive questions they get from their clients and that yeah. can be a predictor for the kinds of attacks that you'll see down the road yeah. as well because if you find your business community being slightly iffy about something for example where their ads appear um, you can be sure that there's somebody else making that same observation in the NGO space or civil society saying that okay if we find a way to argue that this particular ad system is being served in an, in an unsavory way, that is going to be key to change the views of the company. So those mechanisms are better um, utilized, understood by yourself before somebody else understands them, I think. But exactly. I want to go back to attacks. So, so we've now talked about um, the grumbling, we've talked about steel manning, we've talked about not devaluing and dismissing, trying to understand the attacks in depth. But then there's also this other strategy that you started out with uh, referencing uh, Elon Musk saying that he would uh, launch a thermonuclear lawsuit. So when do you think it's actually legitimate to just hit back as hard as you possibly can? And what are the driving factors behind such a decision? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm as a professional sort of fascinated to see what will happen because there are, we, we, you know, if Elon Musk takes this very aggressive strategy, because there are, there are different potential outcomes, and one is that, you know, people do back off from attacking his platform because he scares them off. Uh, that is, and that's obviously, I think, his intention. Um, so I, I don't know because we, I don't think anyone has ever been that aggressive in our space. So it is kind of new territory going into. There is the Gawker lawsuit. I sometimes think about yeah. that. But that's yeah. from an individual, a very rich individual, to a media site. So that's slightly different. But yes. Exactly. But my my instinct tells me that it will backfire. Uh, that's my instinct. Because it's still, even if you scare people off for a while, you put a bigger target on your back. Uh, um, so I, I'm not sure. You know, It might be that those individual institutions sort of feel they can't go there. But but you yeah it's it's not going to solve the problem if there is an underlying issue and I think you know Meg is there is this underlying question so when would you go after somebody I I think if they I, I, again it's not about the fact you don't like a spin that they've put on something it's where 
they themselves are sort of maliciously, uh, um, I use that word advisedly, they're not doing something that is not in the public interest, that's in their personal interest, uh, mm. trying to extract something from you. But even there, I have to say, from the experience we have, even when you know, you looked at it and said, look, this person is coming after you because they have some kind of financial interest in coming after you. <coughs> you went back hard at them and as a big corporation. You still lost. You, still, you know, at the end of the day, you still lost. Then so you're the bully, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they would get, um, I mean, we have one guy coming after us and then he, he managed to get, obviously, discovery in the court case. It's all public. And yeah. so you, he, he gets a load of documents because you're now having a, a court case with them. And then he just sort of blows the discovery by putting all these documents in the public domain that are harmful to the reputation of your business. So you, it's almost no win. I would say my instinct would be that the strategy has to be to take all that energy and money that you would be putting into dealing with court cases and put it into you know really developing those simple, clear messages and getting your position out there and trying to win the argument for what you're doing writ large so that people then look at you know that that uh third party and say well look they lose interest they lose interest because they no longer uh think that that person's got something valid to to ask but yeah yeah no i i think i think that's right there are two cases that i'd like to get your opinion on Mm. that i think are interesting possible exceptions to this the first is that occasionally you just have to let the Wookiee win. So sometimes yeah. your internal leadership needs a fight because they've been pushed, they've been shoved, they've been put in a corner, they feel bad about themselves. And in order to sort of gain back some of their um, their sense of almost self-worth, they have to fight back. So you, you do an aggressive push in media, maybe you sue somebody, maybe you sort of go back and, and attack just because there's this... You, you almost have to do it for morale reasons. That's sort of the first case, possibly, you know, mm. it's more of a question. The second case that I think is interesting is when it's very, very clear that you're attacked by something that is astroturfing. There's a massive set of interests behind it. It can be, you know, for the sake of argument, say that, you know, five big telcos are funding this little thing to go after you. And it's very clear uh, where the funding is coming from, but nobody's writing that article. And what you want to do is you want to draw attention to the fact that this is actually not legitimate criticism from a civil society actor. This is a thinly veiled corporate attack uh, from another corporation or from another set of corporations. Those two cases seem to merit a slightly mm. different response, but maybe not. Yeah, I think maybe there's a thread between them where I would, the test I would apply is, is the action you're taking genuinely in the public interest? Uh, and, and that would join both of them. So there might be a case, I think actually now one court case, I think where that does hold up, and that's that WhatsApp was going after this Israeli spy company for compromising WhatsApp security in order to be able to, to spy on people. And that, I think there, you can argue, yes, it's, it's in the company, just the, and the scenario you described where the leadership was really up for the fight is right. But then I think it stands up because it's genuine in the public interest. It's not about defending the company. It's about defending the users. And that's ah, the distinction. I like that. Yeah. Whereas if it's just about the company and the company's money, and that, this is where the, the current scenario with, with Musk is interesting because that's about the revenue of the company not about the users of the company, and that's how I think people will perceive it. 
that's not a public interest defence. Uh, so I think that that's challenging. So firstly, is a real public interest then then take those court cases? Um, and then, yeah, it, it, uh, are there other circumstances where where you, you you want to go this astroturfing one? If it's corporate versus corporate, there it's almost like a stalemate. So there, I think you might want to because it's especially you know, if you, it's thinly disguised as like an yeah. NGO attacking. You want to expose that in order to be able to bring it to a, a knuckles to knuckles fight between corporations because those are quickly devalued by the political and rightly so by by political commentators and observers i think yeah neither view is then acting in or can really make the claim you're acting in the public interest although having said that again uh i think of a corporate corporate like epic games versus apple i think it is where they're that there they are standing up a public it's corporate versus corporate but they're standing up a public interest argument which is they shouldn't have to pay the fees to Apple App Store uh, because somehow that's not in the user's interest. And, they, and they'll sometimes try and make it look more like a user argument by saying, look, I then have to withdraw from the App Store, therefore the user suffers. <laughs> so it's sort of, it's a mixed one. But I think <clears throat> corporate versus corporate is is more arguable um, and you need to then dig into it. And corporate, where it's absolutely clearly in the interest of their users, defending their users against some other third party, those are the two that work. Mm. The one that doesn't work is corporate defending what appears to be its own interest, particularly its own financial interests, against somebody who is claiming to be acting in the user interest, where their claim is at least, you know, arguable. Yeah, uh, and then. As you move against them, it looks like you're putting your money before their defense of the user. Yes. And that's where we often find ourselves and where I think we're in deep trouble. Yes. Well, we'll have a chance to see this unfold in real life. And I think it's yeah. going to be really interesting because, you know, the observational politics is that in a post-truth world, it actually helps to attack back. And as long as you don't back off a single centimeter, you seem to be uh, able to defend you know, obvious outright lies. And and that to me is is fascinating. And I wonder if that spreads. I really hope it doesn't spread to to the sort of corporate communications world because I I actually think it destroys something important, which is that value of the deeply felt connected conflict where where you can where you can get real change rather than tribal reassurance. And so there there is something there that I think is is worth protecting. So um, all for the the well thought through, well designed, and grounded attack. I think that's something that that's where you have to take a deep breath and go back and, as you said, p- put your big boys pants big boys pants on. But but I I I hope we don't end up in that sort of formulaic world where the attacks are just ways of ensuring that your own base remains interested in what you're doing, loyal to you, or uh, has a sense of of um, belonging. Yes, they should be. They should have some productive output. They should be the gadfly on the corporate oxen. As it were. Yes, that's really good. That's I like that. It's a, it's a reference to Socrates. That's a very late hour. So uh, with that, uh, let's conclude this. You can find this uh, podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And we will be back with one more episode before Christmas where we sum up the year and talk through what has happened, which is almost nothing. We come off a weekend that's been completely uneventful in AI land, for example. So uh, more about that (laughs) later. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for listening.